Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I am once again joined by Kathleen Vanderwill. Kathleen, welcome to today's episode. Hello, Pat. I'm so glad to be with you for this new opera. Yeah, this is quite the opera. This is a Strauss opera with his beloved collaborator, Hugo von Hofmannsthal, and it's a little bit of a fairy tale. Yeah, very, very much a fairy tale. It is Die Frau ohne Schatten, The Woman Without a Shadow. The Woman Without a Shadow. So she actually has no shadow? She literally has no shadow for most of this play, or this opera. But that means more than just the darkness that's between you and the sunlight or the (laughs) whatever light. Yes, well, as we'll be talking about quite a bit throughout this episode, there's a lot of symbolism, almost one might say... A, a surfeit, almost too much symbolism <laughs> yes, yes. in this. And having or not having a shadow means a lot of different things for von Hofmannsthal and Strauss. Most obviously, it means that she is infertile. She does not have the ability to have children. So to not cast a shadow is to not be able to leave a sort of imprint of yourself upon the world. Hmm. Children. Mm-hmm. Yes. Little, little versions of you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, we're going to learn more about this woman without a shadow later. But the story, the scene of the opera opens with a woman who is dressed typically as a, as a, as a bad guy. She looks a little ominous and scary. And she's met by this messenger who says he's bringing a very important message Yes. So this woman is, she's known as the nurse in the play. And she is, she is a a nurse, a nursemaid, a companion figure to our main woman without a shadow. And the nurse is a character that is very much not of the human world. She is a supernatural creature. It is not entirely explicit exactly what kind of creature she is. And that's that is a sentence I will say many times yeah. that don't try to like pinpoint things too specifically as like, oh, this is this and this is the mythology of that. Yeah, this is not an opera to be taken literally. No, this isn't like a, a Lord of the Rings where the history of all of the characters and their various ancestors has been written unto 12 generations. This is very symbolic. And she is a nurse figure in the way that any nurse from fairy tale is, except a little bit more. She's a little bit like a bad fairy. Let's say that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she's she's a little pushy. <laughs> well, she's met by this messenger who brings a message of urgency. Yes. Yeah, so when our scene opens, there's a lot of stuff that's gone on before, which we'll get into. But the main characters are about to face a crisis, which is that this main woman, this woman without a shadow, who is known as the Empress in the opera... She is not entirely human. She's she's part human, part divine. And she has married a human man. And he is the emperor of this magical kingdom, realm, fairy tale place. Okay. Um, We're with you. Don't, I won't ask too many questions. <laughs> and because she is part divine, she doesn't really belong to his world. And neither does the nurse. Right. And so she's facing a crisis where her divine world is calling her back and is saying you've been here for almost a year and if you don't either choose to be in the human world entirely and find a way to gain a shadow Mm -hmm. which is also sort of a a way of saying be human if you can't do that then you have to come back home 
and your and it's even worse though <laughs> yes and your emperor will pay the price and he will be turned to stone so when you mess with the divine you try to affiance the divine there are consequences yes. yeah it's true well actually our first clip of music is after that interchange between the nurse and the messenger with that information and by the way the nurse is pretty thrilled about this because oh, yeah. she does not like any bit of the human world even with the elevated status of the emperor she mm -hmm. wants she wants to be back where she belongs but we're gonna listen first to this emperor who is so deeply in love with his empress and he's he's not an ordinary guy he is an emperor but in this song it's which is going to sound i believe very romantic he is going to recount how he found his wife and fell in love with her and it's not your typical meet cute no and uh, the emperor is is one of those characters that is he is human but he has a divinity to him in the way that like a any king or emperor of history or myth kind of does they're they're sort of semi divinely chosen one might say mm. um so even though he's human he lives in this sort of in-between world where he they say in the the opera his the towers of his palace touch the sky he's not quite human <laughs> he's as divine as a human can be and so all sorts of strange things happen to him too and while he was out hunting one day mm. his falcon led him to a gazelle which he shot and then that a gazelle turned into a beautiful woman stop me if you've heard this story before yeah <laughs> well he he didn't shoot her in the heart he grazed her and as she fell down the falcon's wings touched her eyes this is all in the song <laughs> and she becomes this exquisite woman mm -hmm. that we know as the empress right and and we sort of learn later that she is a, the empress part of her divinity is she can change shape at will yeah um but not anymore because once she was wounded she uh, lost the ability to do that but yes he is Absolutely thrilled by this, takes her home, makes her his empress, but now the consequences are coming. The the birds are coming home to roost. Right, right. We're gonna hear a little bit of the emperor speaking about this backstory and his love for the empress. And listen a little ways into this clip. You will hear this word shotten, shadow, because even the white gazelle, she cast no shadow. And he noted it at the time. Oh, 
was the emperor in Richard Strauss's Die Frau ohne Schatten, The Woman Without a Shadow, and he is describing a hunting trip in which he finds a gazelle who becomes a beautiful woman in his very arms. He's comfortable with this magical world because he marries her and makes her his empress. Yes, and they've enjoyed almost a year of happiness. It is clear that he, as we've said, is very in love with her. He has been with her every night, but he has had in the back of his mind that, well, he really liked that falcon of his yeah. and he had to drive the falcon off because the falcon attacked the gazelle. And mm. one very minor, but I guess sort of important thing we'll tell you is that when that happened, the falcon upon gazelle attack, <laughs> she had a little talisman that had the fate of the emperor written upon it and the shadow prophecy and this sort of curse. Yeah, no longer in her possession. This will never come up again. <laughs> in in telling you these stories, I hesitate to give you almost too much detail because I, I don't want you to get lost in the detail uh, because there are so many little <laughs> things like that, that. I think that can't be avoided. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll do our best. Anyway, just, just that is a thing. You will never have to, it will not be on the test. Um, yeah. <laughs> but that is why he chased the falcon off but he has had i suppose a lingering thought in the back of his mind mm. that this whole hunting trip where he found his wife was a bit odd so he's decided to go on another hunting trip to find the falcon and yes. make amends make amends yes it wasn't the falcon's fault and the the sound of the falcon is something you'll hear a lot throughout this opera it's a theme This hunting trip is going to take three days, the last three days of their year together. Three is a number that is very important in this opera. And many other places. And many <laughs> other places. There is a significant influence of numerology throughout the opera, not just three, but also seven and 12 are important mm -hmm. numbers. So three days that he's going to be gone, the first three days that he's been without her in a year. Change of scene. We are now with the Empress who is in bed asleep with her dreams. And we have been told, by the way, that the emperor spends every night. He desires her every night. He spends every night with her. So this without a shadow takes on meaning with the young wife. She hasn't had children. But the nurse starts to wake her up, wondering why in the world are you waking me up? I, there's nothing I have to do. My husband's not here. And she just wants to, to dream again, almost of this long-lost, mystical, magical world of hers. Yes, she's a character that's pulled in many directions. And this is probably a good time to pause and talk about the three types of settings that we'll encounter in right. this opera. So to sort of set the scene for the future here, you have where we are now, which is the Emperor's Palace. And that is an in-between world. It's not divine, but it's close to, it touches the heavens. And it's lofty. Yeah, and it has characters in it who are themselves 
either touched by the divine, semi-divine, or in the case of the nurse, actually, she's a full fairy creature. Yeah, divine in the way that Mephistopheles is divine. Yes. And then you have the human world, which we'll be visiting soon. Mm. And we have certain characters that belong entirely to that world. Mm -hmm. And then you have the divine world, which we will also visit at, at some point in the opera. And those characters are fully within that world and, and don't often descend to the others. Except in the form of these messengers. We'll see two of them in the opera. <laughs> well, as the Empress wakes up, she is greeted by the voice of the falcon. And the falcon repeats to her the information that she long forgot because of the lost amulet. Similar to what the nurse was told by the messenger in the very beginning of the opera, that she must either cast a shadow within the next three days, or she will be pulled from this world with her husband, the emperor, whom she loves dearly, and the emperor will turn to stone, because it's his love that's really keeping her here. So he's going to be punished. This is not good news for her. Yes, so she turns to her nurse, her companion, mm -hmm. and begs her to use her power to find a shadow for the empress. It's not clear how she will do this, but the nurse is a character who has a lot of power and is able to solve a lot of a lot of quandaries within this opera, mm -hmm. and she is right to ask her because the nurse has a plan. The nurse has a plan, and we're going to play you just a very short clip of this interaction between the empress and the nurse as the empress is feeling great urgency, frantic, you might say, and the nurse sees an opportunity maybe even to extricate herself from the world of men. listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is Die Frau ohne Schatten, The Woman Without a Shadow. And we have just met that woman, the Empress, and she has been talking to her nurse about this curse that is about to befall her if she doesn't find a shadow. She has asked her nurse to help her, who is definitely the best person to ask in this situation because she's got some, she's got some magic about her. Yes, she is a, a Mephistopheles-type <laughs> character. And the nurse also has her own motivations. I think she sees this perhaps as an opportunity to get the Empress and herself back to the realms of the divine. Mm. She agrees to help the Empress to get a shadow, but the only way one can get a shadow in the logic of this fairy tale universe is to take someone else's shadow. So the nurse proposes that they go down to the human world now, as we've said, they are 
technically in the human world, but the really, really human world yeah. where the town is and the people work and, you know. <laughs> not, not in this lofty, uh, touching the clouds, right. nearly touching the spirit world of the emperor. Yeah, yes. a lot of times people will refer to this emperor's land as the spirit world. And in, in a way it is because it's it's so elevated from the everyday cares and woes. But the nurse says, listen, you need to understand, if you go down to the world of men, it's stinky, it's smelly. Their odor smells like death to us, desiccated corpses. You'll have to mingle with ordinary, yucky people. <laughs> how, how terrible. <laughs> yeah. Snuggle up to their wickedness, bend down to their stupidity, serve them, and which they actually will end up doing these two. But the Empress is not cowed by this description. Mm. She has a great deal of personal courage, I will say. Mm -hmm. And she does not want her husband to turn to stone. She doesn't want to go back to the divine realm. She wants to stay here. She wants this shadow. And she is willing to accept both the smelliness and <laughs> also the sort of um, the moral problems associated with tricking or coercing or in some way stealing another person's shadow. And we will talk a lot more about what it means to take another person's shadow later on. Yeah. And the Empress is not without fear, but she is also not without courage. She agrees to join the nurse and go down so that she can save her husband. In this short clip that we're going to hear, the Empress will tell us that she, yes, she's, of course, she's afraid, but she has courage. And the nurse says, okay, then you're not going to like it, but here we go. And then we get some transitional music. Yes. And there's a, there's a lot of scene transitions. We've talked about how there's these three different main settings, and we often have to transition between these, these places. So there's a lot of transition music written into this opera, more than I remember from other operas. Well, to me, it's reminiscent of a few different operas, but one that you and I talked about earlier was Peleus and Melesson. That has a lot of transitional music, and it, it provides an opportunity not just the very practical, and it is very practical opportunity for the, the technicians to change the sets because we're going to change our location, but it also gives an opportunity to change the mood. There's some interesting correspondence that goes on between uh, the librettist Hoffmannstahl and Strauss. We know a lot of what went on between the two of them when they were working on an opera because often they weren't in the same location, so it, it exists in letters, but Strauss is very practical. He wants to know from Hoffmannstahl, go to the, the theater and find out exactly how long it's going to take. I, I want to write just the amount of music I need, but not more. And Hoffmannstahl, who's a little more of an idealist in a way, just says, "What? You, this is a lot of scene changes. I don't want you to have to write a whole symphony to be cut up into pieces. And, and Strauss is like, well, this is just what we have to do. <laughs> But at the end of the day, Hoffenstahl is very happy with it because the, the mood changes that these transitional pieces of music provide are beautiful orchestral pieces, and they really do help us understand that we're leaving one place, moving into another mood, another location. And in this case, it's a descent. It's a descent from the lofty down to this gritty, smelly world of men. It's a little bit reminiscent of In the Ring when Wotan goes down to... Nibelheim, where, where they're working away, and that's quite a descent, too. But let's listen to the Empress and the Nurse in this discussion, and then we'll hear some of that transitional music as well. Yeah. 
Grasshopper for everyone, and we are listening to Die Frau ohne Schatten, The Woman Without a Shadow by Richard Strauss and librettist Hugo von Hofmannsthal. And we've been up in this elevated world of the emperor and the empress, but now we've descended to the world of men, specifically into the hut of the dire Barak. And just a, a quick note, this is the only named character in the entire show. Barak, this man who works with his hands as a dyer. All of the other characters besides Barak are named by their position, their job, or in the case of the woman he's married to, she is just the woman or Barak's wife. Yes, and that's because they're archetypes. They are not meant to be individual people as much. And I think it's important to remember that when you are listening to or or watching this opera, I think a lot of people will try to make this feel like a consistent story with lots of like characters that are well built out. Yeah. That's not what you're getting here. You're getting, think of it once again, very much as a fairy tale, just like Snow White, there's a huntsman and a queen and we don't know their names. It is very much that kind of thing. But I do agree that I think it's important that Barak is given a name and he is probably the most human character in the sense of humanity. He definitely has the most human kindness. Yes, for sure. Barak is a dyer by trade, and he has many brothers and sisters that he grew up with, 13 children, we'll Mm. find out. And three of them are working and and living with him and and helping him in this dyer's trade. All of whom are in some way disabled, and he cares for them. Yes. And three, once again, important number. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So there are three brothers that we are introduced to at the beginning of this scene. And what's important to, to me about them is not only that there are three, but they all lack something. So there's one that lacks an eye. There's one that lacks a straight back. There's one that lacks an arm. And Barak as well lacks something. And what he lacks is children. Mm. Barak wants to be surrounded by children, just as he was when he grew up. And he has a wife, who we are about to meet, who, for her own reasons, does not want to have children and has not had children, though they have been married for several years. Mm -hmm. And the central tension of their marriage, of this scene, and of her relationship with two people she's about to meet, the empress and the nurse, is she is not infertile. Um, her, Her body is not infertile, but she has chosen not to have children. And in the context of this play, that is seen as a negative. Yeah, you could say that one of the big messages of this play is humans, you have a duty to procreate. Yeah, and and to, right, to create versions of yourself, create little shadows, one might say. Yes. (laughs) So we open in this house before the appearance of the empress and the nurse. uh, We see the woman interacting with these three brothers who are behaving like rough and tumble boys together. They are just bumping into each other and making a lot of noise. And it drives the woman, Barak's wife, crazy. She's like, out of my house, out of my house. And she even threatens Barak when he comes in, either they go or I go. But he doesn't take that terribly seriously. I think that we get the impression she's kind of constantly threatening to leave for one Mm. reason or another. Barak's wife is a very interesting character because she's not very sympathetic when you first meet her. No. She is shrill. The music that's written around her is very shrill, like she's this sort of nagging wife character when we first meet her. And Barak is universally painted as this kind man. 
who's willing to feed all of the stray children on the street and take care of his disabled brothers, etc. But she is so unsatisfied with her lot. Mm. And part of that is she, I think, sort of wishes for a bigger life. She wishes for a grander life with luxuries, with beauty. We'll find out very soon that she is, she's very beautiful herself. And And younger than Barak. Yeah. And I think she feels almost like she's, she's in the wrong place right now. Right. She lost out on possibly a grander life Mm -hmm. that she thinks maybe she could have had, but but that's not in the cards anymore. Well, we're going to hear a little bit of Barak, this kind man and his wife. And the clip that we're going to jump in on, he's remembering that his brothers were children one time. He recalls that, and they had bright eyes and strong arms and straight backs then, and they grew up safely in our father's house, and now they need to be cared for, and that is my job. And he's proud of that, and he embraces them with love. And the woman shoots back at him. And you'll notice the music instantly changes. She's like, how you had 13 children. How is it that in your house, if a beggar came to the door, you invited them in, you fed them. How how could you did you were not wealthy people? Why did you do? And Barak says, I could feed 13 children. If we had those children, my wife, my darling, (laughs) and I can provide with my hands. And he says, please, Just let me have children. I will care for them. They will never go hungry. I will be thrilled to give them everything they require. And this does absolutely nothing to calm her down. Thank you. 
Jesus ist ein Mann, der vor dir steht. Soll ich dir nicht That's a little sense of the relationship between the husband and wife, Barak, and his wife. He maintains shockingly good humor through most of this entire show. Yes, he seems to actually be sort of the perfect husband for her in some ways, not perhaps in his socioeconomic status. That seems to be displeasing to her, but he's so kind and he's so understanding. And even though he clearly wants children and tries to convince her to have children, He also seems to be somewhat understanding of the fact that she is not like other women that he knows. And he respects that and loves her for her difference. And one of the things that makes her different is that she doesn't want children. But I believe he he thinks he can bring her around to his point of view. But she is she's a bitter woman at her lot. She even hurls out at him that I was bought and paid for and I'm kept in this house and I I just don't want this life anymore. They've been married for two and a half years and she says, listen, we don't have children. It's been two and a half years. I've reconciled myself to that fact that we don't have children and you also need to reconcile yourself to that fact. Yes, but he is still hopeful. He is. And it's so interesting because she's so insistent that this is off the table, it's done. And his response is still to be calm and kind and say, you're young. Those are very harsh words. He even says those words are blessed because I know they can change. And he is awaiting that change. Let's hear just a little bit of Barack's humanity that we talked about before, this kindness. So even this wife of his who is shrieking at him shrilly that he's got to get over his hopes for future happiness. It's like, I don't reproach you. I'm content. I'm patient. I'm sure in time we will have children, he tells her. Thank you. 
This is Upper for Everyone, and we have just been listening to Barak the Dyer being extremely understanding and very sweet towards his uh, <laughs> shrewish wife. <laughs> yes, very patient, very kind. <laughs> and she's a bit of a shrew right now, but she's deeply unhappy, and we'll get to know her a little bit better as, as time goes on. Mm. So Barak has been kind to his wife. He's had this argument with her, but it's time for him to take the goods to market because he's a working man. He's this dyer. One comment about what he's dyeing. The recent productions that I've seen have had him either dyeing cloth or dyeing yarn. But in older recountings of this opera, he's dyeing hides, mm. which honestly is a much smellier business. Yes. If he's so he's he, he's a tanner really in those productions. Yeah. Well, I would say her life would be much worse. <laughs> because the hut is also the workplace. And so, I mean, I don't, it's not a huge difference, but I was thinking, oh, her life would be even more unpleasant if they're dying animal skins as opposed to woven cloth or yarn. Mm -hmm. Far, far more unpleasant. Yes. Anyway, it's, there's not well. a big deal made of any of that, but he, he is the reason why he can provide for his brothers and for needy children in the area and hopefully his own family because he's a serious man who does his work. So he packs up to take his goods to market. Yeah, he's packing all of his wares uh, on his back. And it's so interesting because they are not a wealthy family. He says, I, cheerfully, he says, I will carry the goods to market myself. I'll spare the donkey. And I'm so proud that I can do all this work. And he, he not only takes care of his wife, of his brothers, of the needy in the neighborhood, he even takes good care of his donkey. Yes, he is a man without parallel. <laughs> he really he's is. He's the best man in the world. Best man in the world. Well, he's off to do his work, earn the bread. Yes. And the second that he leaves, of course, the mm. nurse sees her her moment. Mm -hmm. So we've mentioned Mephistopheles and the Faust story before. And one thing we haven't talked about explicitly when it comes to the shadow is the idea that shadow is not just a representation of potential future children or evidence of humanity it's also a soul it is mm. it is the soul within us the shadow that we cast behind us is proof of our humanity because it represents our soul as well so the nurse as this mephistopheles character sees the moment of weakness in this woman yes. chooses her victim well yes and appears at exactly the right moment mm-hmm in a sort of flash of, of fire and magic, she's all of a sudden there with the empress mm -hmm. and says, my daughter, my beautiful woman, yeah, butter you know, her up what are with you compliments. doing here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> The, the dyer's wife is a little like who is this lady but she is showered with compliments and she meets the empress the beautiful empress and the nurse in this scene yes the nurse doesn't just compliment her beauty and insult her husband she she also 
promises all of these other wonderful things that could be hers slaves and brocades and silk dresses and houses and fountains and gardens and lovers every night. Yes. So the nurse sets in and pitches hard here. (laughs) So the nurse gets to it pretty quickly, Mm -hmm. as we just said, and says, what what we want is your shadow. And that's the, you know, nothing's free, right? Right. Nothing's free. We want your your shadow, but you have to understand that that has a high price and people would be willing to pay almost infinite amounts for it. And the dyer's wife reacts kind of like, oh, I never thought about selling that, but you know, I'm interested. And the nurse makes it clear what, well, mostly clear what that exchange (laughs) would be. Um, she even says, you know, well, you don't really want to have children with this oafish older guy who isn't really that handsome. And so why would you want to retain the ability to have children? And she offers her lovers. She says, you know, yeah. you don't have to be with this guy. I can give you lovers and even conjures up a vision or or a, maybe even a real man on stage of this who could knows? be yours. Yes. <laughs> yes. And she also says... Here's a, a taste of it. Let yeah. me give you this headband. It's not all words, my dear. Yeah. This is real. And she gives her this crown or tiara or jewel mm-hmm. to adorn her hair. And there's an important moment where the dyer's wife says, I don't have a mirror, so I can't really look at myself. <laughs> and it's it's even implied a little bit that maybe she's not really aware of how beautiful she is. She's never metaphorically and maybe literally seen herself mm-hmm. like this. Yeah. But the nurse brings forward a hand mirror and shows it to her and says, look at yourself. You may be making the connection that I am, which is shadow, soul, supernatural creatures often (laughs) can't see themselves in mirrors. That's Mm -hmm. another sort of facet of the fairy tale. Yeah. But because she has a soul, she can see herself in the mirror and see how beautiful she is. Now, we're going to listen to a little bit of music in a minute of this sort of swelling chorus of all the beautiful things that she's that she's imagining her life could be. But I do want you to think, who have we not heard from in this scene? Hardly at all, if at all. The Empress. No, she's just, she's just watching. Watching. She stands there. And that is something I find fascinating about this opera as a whole. There are many, many scenes where the Empress is just there in the background and she's just observing. And all the action is the dyer's wife or the nurse or Barak. So that is happening here. And she's, she says a few little things, mm-hmm. but for the most part, she is just watching.
And the dyer's wife is very intrigued. Yes, but the nurse is a very good negotiator. Yes, <laughs> of course. So the second that she offers her all this beautiful stuff mm. and she sees that the dyer's wife wants it, she mm. takes it away. Mm-hmm. So it vanishes. It's an illusion. And the wife is, of course, like, how do I get this back? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and says, okay, well, I... I'm totally open to this concept of selling my shadow. Tell me exactly how to do it. Yeah. Say it now. Say it immediately. And so the nurse makes her last big push and she describes the horrors of motherhood and and what will happen to the beauty that Dyer's wife possesses if she lets Barak get her pregnant, that she will will no longer be slim and beautiful and her life will be taken up taking care of all these children and she'll be tired. And the woman says, yes, I hear you. That's what I've been thinking, too, basically. Yeah. And the nurse says, "Okay, if you are convinced you have sworn to me that you will make this deal, we are going to be with you for a little while. We're going to make this transition and we have to bring in mighty names, great powers. But it's a covenant. It's a pact. It's an agreement. This girl and I, she gestures towards the Empress, we will stay here and we will pretend to be your servants. We will sleep by the foot of your bed. We're going to move your husband's bed far away from yours. So all of that's taken care of. And when those three days are over that we live here, they're those same three days again, aren't they? (laughs) You, my dear, will enter into a life of joy with all the riches and servants you could ever desire. Yes, and... It's not really clear why they need to stay there for three days and be servants, but it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> That's just how it is. Yes, it's just a it's fairy tale logic. You could say it's they have to spend three days in the sort of quote unquote underworld, the mm-hmm. real world, before they can emerge into the other realms. But whatever the reason, the wife acquiesces, but the cares of her current life come back to her because she hears her husband coming back and she says, I have been dreaming. I have been pretending to wear jewels and I haven't gotten dinner ready. And he's going to come back and be upset that I have just been just frittering away my time. And then the nurse says, I'm a magician, so I'll fix everything. Yeah, I can take (laughs) those cares and worries are a thing of the past, my dear. Yeah. Right. And really, once again, she's got the hard sell on. So the nurse snaps her fingers and there's fish in the pot and the bed has been split in two magically and is on the other side of the room. Mm -hmm. And as this is all happening, there's a moment musically that makes 
the dyer's wife pause. Mm -hmm. So she has given up the future that she could have had as a mother. Mm -hmm. She's given up the potential of children by making this bargain. And musically, we hear a children's chorus at this point. And they are singing, mother, mother, let us come home. And are plaintively complaining that they are lost in the dark, that she's left them out. And it's, it in fact comes from the pot with the fishes in it, which is a little unnerving. Unnerving. Yeah. <laughs> and this greatly unnerves the, the dyer's wife, of course. Yes, this is definitely fairy tale land. We've got the voices of the children who seem to be coming out of the pot with the frying fish, begging to be let in the door. Mother and father are both appealed to. And I don't know, when I watch that, that sends chills down my spine. <laughs> yes, I think it's very much meant to. Soon, Barak, in fact, returns from the market. And he's a happy guy. Yeah, he seems to be a pretty... Uh successful merchant. He comes home, he's made money, he sold all his wares, and he smells his dinner cooking. So he's, you know, he's a happy guy. <laughs> but then he looks around and things are not the same in his home. Yes. Well, his bed has been split in half <laughs> and yeah. moved to the other end of the, the hut. Mm -hmm. So he is being given this message by his wife that they will not only will they not have children, but they will literally not sleep together anymore. Mm -hmm. So there is a real physical rupture in their relationship. And at this point, you really see the wife try to push Barak because as we talked about, he's got this sort of like angelic nature. He's so kind. Right. And she realizes that she's going to have to be really cruel to him to get him to let her go. Mm -hmm. And she's going to have to push him. So she starts pushing him. She breaks the bed in two. She moves it to the other end of the, the hut. And she says, I'm not going to sleep with you anymore. I'm not going to eat with you. You can eat your dinner on your own. And also, Two of my poor relations have shown up and they're going to sleep at the foot of my bed and be my maids from now on. Yeah. And that's, it is what it is. I've said it and it shall be so, she says. And he is sad about this, but he just sort of says, all right, I yeah. guess one more thing to bear. One more thing to bear. And he doesn't say it here, but you have the feeling that he's thinking what he said about her other unkind words, which is, it's going to change. It's going to get better. I believe that that can all be made right again because nothing is irrevocable yet. Mm -hmm. And after he decides he's lost his appetite from this argument and goes to bed, we have the final voices of this first act of this three-act opera are the voices of the night watchmen in the street. Yes, and, and they are representative of basically the main idea of the opera, which mm. is married people should be together. People should love each other and they should make children. 
and they should invest those children with love. The idea is that to love another person and to have a fruitful marriage is the only antidote to, to death, to just emptiness. And it's really encouraged to not only love, but have a fruitful love. And, right. And, yeah. Yeah. The, they're speaking of humanity. I have to say, I, the first time I saw this, I had a little trouble with it because I was making these specific people the empress taking this ability away from the dyer's wife. And I found that really hard to take. But when you get this wisdom from the the people out in the street, the watchmen out in the street, kind of like a Greek chorus saying, your life is not entrusted just for you. You are part of the human race. You are part of humanity and humanity must continue. Mm-hmm. You can't You can't prevent humanity from continuing and love is such a part of humanity and continuing means there will be children amongst us. And it's probably a good time to talk about when this opera was written and and when it was performed. So it's performed in, in 1919, which is a time in which many, many, many young men and their wives have been torn apart. Many children have lost fathers in the Great War. So it's a particularly effective message, I think. Right, right. The the libretto itself was finished, Hoffenstahl finished it in 1915, but it was very much put on hold because Hoffenstahl had to help out in the war effort. And yeah, the rupture of World War I is profound. So it's not until October of 1919 that this opera sees its premiere in Vienna and the idea of the human race continuing this is not just a simple pretty thought this feels very urgent and real at this time well I'm not going to play that for you because sadly my recording was made in such a way that these are offstage voices and it's not good enough quality to listen to but we will listen to Barack coming home from market happy and then hearing the confrontation he has with his wife when she says, everything's going to change. Füßen. 
als meinen Mägden. So ist es gesprochen und so geschieht es. Listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Kathleen Vandewell. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast, where you can find scores of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I am Pat Wright, and I'm here with Kathleen. Hi, Pat. So happy to be here. Oh, thrilled to have you for this complicated, <laughs> complex opera. Yeah, it's 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 a complex one. Yeah, but fun. We yes. like it. Yes, this is Strauss's Die Frau ohne Schatten, The Woman Without a Shadow. I mean, I really sort of feel like I should say this is Strauss's and Hoffmannsthal's because they worked back and forth, inspiring and reining in one another. Yes, I think your little booklet that came with the CD said it was a fairy tale by two intellectuals, which I I actually love that way of describing it. Yeah, I think that's legit for these two. Well, let's jump in and identify the folks who made the CD that we've been listening to in our little clips. This was a recording made in 1996 by the Staatskapelle Dresden Orchestra and Chorus under the direction of Giuseppe Sinopoli. The role of the Empress is sung by Deborah Voigt, The Emperor by Ben Hepner, The Nurse by Hannah Schwartz, The Dyer is Franz Grunheber, 
His wife is Samin Haas. And then his three brothers are Andreas Scheibner, Andre Eckhart, and Roland Wagenführer. Thank you one and all for this beautiful music that we've been listening to. And now, Kathleen, you know what time it is. Is it the opera helmet quiz time? Yes, and I've I've just handed the helmet to you. Could you give us a quick synopsis of what we've listened to so far in act one of our three-act opera? Hold on, let me settle it on my head. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so we have met the Empress. She is a fairy tale creature, sort of half human, half divine. And her nurse, who is uh, also divine, fairy, sort of ambiguous creature. Yeah, um, in, a, in a negative In a negative way. way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's sort of a Maleficent character. Mm-hmm. They are in a human realm because the Empress was caught by the emperor she was running as a as a gazelle a white gazelle because she can she can do that she can change shape she could before anyway and he shot her with an arrow and that turned her into a beautiful woman and he was very excited by that fact and married her immediately so she has been in the human realm with the emperor for almost a year but her time is up there's a curse that she has to gain a shadow. She has had no shadow. That's how mm. she, you can tell she's not quite human. And if she gains a shadow within three days, she gets to stay and her emperor is all fine and dandy. If not, he gets turned to stone. So it's a very <laughs> bad curse. And that sets up the action of the Yes, the but a shadow is not just a shadow. Yes. A shadow in this opera is a way of talking about humanity, a soul, And also fertility, the ability to have children. So as a supernatural creature, she can't have children with a human. And so she wants to get this shadow. The nurse says, let me help you out. Mm. We have to go to the the town, the very, very human realm, which the nurse says is is dirty and terrible and smelly, smelly, (laughs) the smell (laughs) of humanity. So they do, the empress and the nurse go down into the town and the emperor goes off on a hunt for three days to find his falcon. And the nurse and the empress encounter Barak the Dyer, who is a good, lovely, hardworking man and his very dissatisfied wife, mm-hmm. the Dyer's wife. Yeah. And it is her shadow that the nurse starts trying to steal. So at the end of our first act the dyer's wife has decided she will give up her shadow to the empress which means she will no longer be able to have children but that's okay because she doesn't want to or so she says and she's been so tempted by all the goodies the nurse (laughs) is showing her yes the nurse has been been showing her the whole world that she could have if she if she only sold her shadow slash soul and at the end of the act the two characters supernatural fairy characters are going to stay with the dyer's wife and serve her for three days and the dyer's wife has told her husband you're not going to sleep in the same bed as me anymore these are my maidservants they're going to stay and i will not sleep with you anymore and he's very sad but bears it well yeah because he's he's hopeful that she's young she's impetuous she hasn't done anything she can't take back Not yet, at least. (laughs) Not yet, at least. Well, before we jump into the second act, I want to make a shout out to Kathleen. Some of the work you do when you're not discussing opera with me, (laughs) you do talk about a lot of other forms of entertainment and enlightenment in an amazing 
an amazing blog that you write on Substack, Constructive Criticism. Yeah, so I just... uh... I watch a lot of things and I, I want to talk about them and tell people about them. So I, I do that semi-regularly at constructivecriticism.substack.com. So check it out. Yeah, it's spectacular. I recommend it highly. I, I always enjoy it. Don't get around to watching all the things that you do. But there are... <laughs> I don't think anyone ever, ever could watch all the things. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. Well, anyway, <laughs> back to Die Frau ohne Schatten. Well, we're in the second act and we open on the apartment of Barack the Dyer. And and the nurse is there with the dissatisfied wife and Barack is going off to work and the nurse wants to get in there and continue to tempt this woman with all the things that she might enjoy if she just willingly gives up her shadow. Yes, and the empress I mentioned in the first act often stands to the side and kind of watches. Yes. But one of the things that you'll notice in these scenes is that she's actually developing a relationship with Barak. Yeah. She is is acting as a servant to him. She is helping him get ready for work. And she sees how kind he is and how kind he is to her too. She is acting as a servant in the production that we were fortunate enough to see. Uh, she's, she's still dressed very like an empress. Like mm-hmm. she never really dresses as a servant. But I, I think it's important to remember that she is sort of magically disguised in this. So she doesn't mm-hmm. look like a beautiful fairy princess, but he's so kind to her. So she starts to sort of have second thoughts about what they're doing to the dyer's wife. Well, yeah, it's it's one of those things where she's so focused on what she needs to do to continue on in this happy marriage she has with the emperor and to save her husband, the emperor, who will be turned to stone, that they were just a means to an end but like anything, when, when someone's so distant, you don't think of them as individuals. But again, they're all archetypes, but she's getting to know them as people, mm-hmm. as humans who have real feelings. And he is a, a nice guy. And even the, the dyer's wife, who's not a nice woman, <laughs> she is human mm-hmm. with all that that entails. So while Barack is out, he's gone to work, the interaction continues between the woman and the nurse. But as we just discussed, the Empress is softening and we get more vocalizations from her. We get more words from her showing sympathy with these folk. And then it's time for Barack to come home from work. Yes, and while he's been away, as we said, the nurse has continued the temptations. Uh, She brings a a broom to life. She turns it into a a handsome gentleman (laughs) at one point. (laughs) Perfect fairy tale stuff. (laughs) So when Barack gets back, his wife is dressed in this sumptuous gown and she looks like a princess and he just is sort of still entranced by her beauty and and wants to give her gifts but he also is really happy that he's had such a good day at the market yes so he's in sort of a in a great mood he comes home he's got sweets that he gives to her and he brings his brothers and people from the market and also a whole bunch of children into the house that he's gonna feed and this is a reference once again to that first scene with Barak where he talks about yeah. how he he values the fact that he is successful enough he can feed children and feed a large family and that obviously matters to him so he he's proving to her and i think in a way that he can by bringing all of these children back but she takes it rather badly and he once again says don't worry about her her tongue is sharp but she's not evil she's not a bad person she just speaks 
unkindly, but she's young. She can change. And he, he remains completely optimistic about her. Well, when he, he comes in with the food, he is careful to offer it, as you said, to these servants, this this empress who he's very kind to her. She she just looks like a lowly servant to him. And he says, you're quiet, but please enjoy and take some of these sweets to my wife. And this is the clip we're going to listen to. You'll hear that sweet presentation that he makes to the empress slash servant. It will change dramatically when the wife is given the sweets and she rejects them by just sort of casting them all over the stage. She says, oh, the sweets taste bitter in my mouth. And the brothers will jump into the fray by telling their brother just to ignore this shrill and screeching woman. that's the state of affairs in Barack's household. But we have a change of scene now. We are going to go to more elevated areas in the Imperial Falconer's house, lonely in a forest. And we get to spend a bit of time with the emperor. This is his big solo here where he's talking to the falcon. We'll hear the falcon's theme in a way talking back to him. But he's working through a lot of stuff as regards his wife. Yeah, so I feel like it's fair to maybe acknowledge a little bit here that there's a little bit of confusion of place and time as to where has the where has the emperor been mm-hmm. for these these three days, and, and each act takes place in a day. So there's three acts, three days. So he's off on a hunting trip. He's found the falcon. That was his his goal to mm-hmm. find this falcon. But he also, he says he's received a missive, a letter from his wife saying that for those three days, she's going to stay at the Imperial Falconer's Lodge. So basically at a hunting lodge owned Mm -hmm. by the palace. And obviously we know she's not there. She's at the Dyer's wife's house. But she also isn't really just at the Dyer's wife's house. And it I find this part a little hard to understand because she seems to move back and forth. I, I think it's a Between couple of hours two. per night they steal right. away just to, I don't know why they need to be there, but they do. Right. So she she has been coming back to this lodge when she's not with the Dyer and his wife. But the emperor goes to 
check up on her, I mm-hmm. suppose one would say. Yeah. He has not seemed to be a jealous man before this, but he finds it odd that she's there at the hunting lodge. So he goes to check up on her, but she is not there. And that is going to cause significant jealousy. That's true. But then she does show up. But something's amiss. She smells funny. Yeah. So she, (laughs) once again, this is a little bit odd because how is a a human man, the emperor, able to smell humanity on a woman? I I don't know. It seems like a more, seems like something a, a fairy character might be able to do but yeah and he from does. a distance it's not right. like he speaks with her you know or even lets her know that he's there you know the nurse did say humanity really stinks so <laughs> apparently it is a strong enough stench that even from a little ways away he says something's wrong something smells funny about her she hasn't been just here in this lodge and he starts to get jealous yeah and he starts to think she's been with a man a human man well and not only that she has lied to him Mm -hmm. about where she's going and that might even be the greater transgression yes so in the piece we're about to hear he goes into this jealous rage outside the window and he determines that he has to kill her for Mm. lying to him And he sings about the ways that he's going to kill her. He's going to shoot her with an arrow. And then he says, no, I have to do it with my sword. And he's trying to psych himself up. But each of those has a connection also with him meeting and falling Mm. in love with her. Like the arrow which grazed the gazelle, which turned out to be her. And the sword which loosened some of her clothing. So he can't use any of those things. and, And when he realizes it's only his bare hands, he concludes he can't do it. Yeah, poor guy, I guess. (laughs) He's really going through it. But one important thing to take away from this lovely, lovely solo is that he is going to start mirroring the dyer. So we've seen Mm. how the empress and the dyer's wife are sort of mirror images of each other in a lot of ways, and they lack some things that the other one has or want, like a shadow. But we see, too, that the emperor and the dyer are set up as foils of each other as mirror images as well. So we're going to listen to just a little clip here of what we were discussing when he discovers the scent of mankind on her (laughs) and he decides he must slay her.
Well, the way this act goes, act two, we keep switching locales between the very earthly home of Barak the Dyer and this falconer's cottage, this realm of the emperor and the empress. Things are not going well in Barak's home at this point. The woman, his wife, is becoming increasingly and more obviously dissatisfied with her lot. Yes, the the poison the nurse is pouring in her ear is working. (laughs) Funny you should mention pouring poison. (laughs) It's not poison, but she does pour a little bit of sleeping medicine in a drink that's given to Barak when he doesn't shove off when they would like him to be gone so that the nurse can continue with her temptations. Yes, and, and I think the nurse has kind of, I mean, she's working on a timetable. It's it's yeah. day two, and <laughs> she's only got three. So she says, all right, we need to push things along a little bit. And throughout the sort of seduction of the dyer's wife, the nurse has really relied on two things. One, you'll have all the riches and the beauty and, mm-hmm. you know, the jewels and stuff. And, and two, you'll have this lover. And she's conjured up this idealized lover. And there's an idea in the opera that, if she sleeps with the lover, that will be sort of the seal of the deal. And the nurse, she keeps pushing her to do that. Well, because it's the rejection of her husband mm-hmm. that, yeah, yeah it, that's problematic. Right. She doesn't actually do it. it. As it gets closer and closer, the woman gets frightened because it's so possible. She gets angry at the nurse for drugging her husband. Briefly, she is angry. And she's beginning to see the nurse as a bit of an evil force, calling her a snake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she wakes up Barak yeah. from his drugged sleep and says, there's a man in the house. You know? yeah. <laughs> this conjured up image meant to seduce me, but nevertheless right. a man. Yeah, and she's she's very conflicted. She's going back and forth with him. She wants him to protect her from this man. And then also the man has disappeared. And she gets very angry at him. And she's picking fights. And you really feel for them because this is a really difficult marriage. And in fact, it's, it feels very relevant. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of magical fairy tale stuff going on, too. But yeah. it feels like a, a real rocky period in a marriage. And it's, it's relevant to, I think... Some, some real life challenges that married couples sometimes go through. So it's it's painful to watch them go through it, especially because we have sympathy for them. We're meant to. But she picks another fight. She decides she's going to leave for the city and leave him all alone. Yeah. And she storms out. And Barak is left alone with the Empress. Right, because she storms out. And the, the nurse is not going to let this woman with the shadow depart. But when she storms out, Barak, who's still, by the way, just rousing himself from being drugged, he's a little confused when he hears a noise like, who's there? Who's there? And it's incredibly poignant, I believe, when the Empress turns to him and says, I, my lord, your servant. Because she really is seeing herself in that role, not just make-believe to get what she wants from his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think she understands that he is, in many ways, more worthy than she is. She is serving him because he is the better person. And it's just one more step in her her journey to humanity. Yeah, so let's hear just a little bit of the, the wife leaving in anger, and then the transitioning to Barak trying to figure out what's going on and the Empress responding. <laughs> Oh, 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and we are talking about Die Frau ohne Schatten, the woman without a shadow. And we have switched location again. Back again. <laughs> back to the Falconer's Lodge. So back into the dark woods. And the Empress is snatching a little bit of sleep in the lodge. Not very restful sleep, no, though. No, terrible. She's having terrible yeah. nightmares. She's there with a the nurse, and she has this dream about her husband that he enters the realm of her father, which is sort of the spirit realm, mm. and that the curse is going to be fulfilled, and he's going to be turned to stone, and she's terrified. She wakes up in this scene with a scream and then sings a beautiful aria about her fears for him and also what she's learned about herself Yeah, because she's starting to feel intense guilt not only for the position she's put the emperor in by there being a risk he's going to be turned to stone but also that there's something wrong with her Mm -hmm. that everything she touches she kills is what she says and she says I would rather turn to stone myself than than hurt more people. Right, yeah. So we're going to listen to just a little bit of this exquisitely ominous music. You're going to hear the falcons cry because he's all mixed up in this. (laughs) And then some of this anguished feeling from the Empress. Time to return to Barak's hut, and things are getting dark. (laughs) And the darkness is going to manifest itself typically in the staging as well. And the fever pitch rises with the wife and her dissatisfaction. And the nurse is getting a little more concerned about her timing and meeting her deadline. And the empress is being more and more convinced that these people do not deserve what they have in mind for them. Yes, and the Dyer's wife, as we've seen, has been 
pushing and pushing yeah. her husband more and more. Mm-hmm. And she knows that, I think she's realized that the thing that is going to finally convince him to let her leave him, go off and be a lost soul, is if she tells him that she slept with this mystery broom turned into a man. <laughs> And (laughs) very nice looking broom. Yeah, very (laughs) handsome broom. So she, in this scene, she announces to everyone, to Barak and and his brothers, that she has sold her shadow. Yeah. Which Barak doesn't really know what that means, of course. But he sees in the the firelight that she has indeed sold her shadow. She has no shadow. And he he understands that means that she's lost her soul. And there will be no children in his household. Exactly. And so the wife has given in and she has made this devil's bargain. And she tells her husband that she has slept with the lover, even though we know that she hasn't. Mm -hmm. But she thinks that's the final thing that's going to push him away. And Barak is pushed to the limit. Yes, our mild-mannered Barak. Yeah. has a little period of not being so mild-mannered. Yeah, so in a, in an echo of what we've seen the emperor do, yeah. he declares he's going to kill her. She's dishonored him. And so he says, I'm going to kill you. And the empress jumps in and finally says, this is enough. And I do not want this shadow. This is a shadow stained with blood. Right. And interestingly, these brothers who really haven't had much character at all here other than just being like tumbling puppies on the stage, they scream, you can't do it, brother, you can't do it. They express an understanding of humanity and morality towards the brother who's kind of snapped. Yeah, and everybody is is just in a cacophony in this scene. Everybody is singing all at once and they're trying to restrain Barak and suddenly a sword appears in his hand and the dyer's wife is begging him to kill her because she says, I deserve that. It's very dark. And because there's just this grand cacophony, all of a sudden the gods intervene. Yes. And we've seen some magic here and there. We've seen magical fishies and we've seen the broom (laughs) transformation. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But this is big time magic. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there is an earthquake and it swallows the ground that the hut is on and Mm -hmm. Barak and his wife disappear Mm -hmm. into the realm of the spirits. Yes. Exactly. Floodwaters even are described. They're not always staged, but they are described in the libretto. Let's listen to all of this emotion and action right at the end of Act Two.
you're listening to Opera for Everyone, and we have finished Act Two, and our husband and wife, the Dyer, and his wife, they've been spirited away and kind of put in little pits in the ground. What would you call that? Mm, They're sort of in, in the spiritual underworld. Right. Separated from one another. And we're going to leave them there for a moment and just talk about a few other (laughs) issues and items surrounding this opera. First of all, this opera, whose libretto we've mentioned numerous times, written by Hugo von Hoffmannsthal, he had a lot of sources that he was gaining inspiration from. Yeah, I I would say a lot of the operas that you and I do together, Pat, have one source material or or a limited number of direct source materials but this one is more of a melange i would say there's a lot of goethe in there there's some faust as we've mentioned yes there's also goethe has a sort of very lesser known work called conversations with german refugees or immigrants and in that it's a novella they tell a lot of traditional German fairy tales, not ones that you've ever heard before, but same sort of stuff that appears here. There's not like a direct, it's from this exact section, but I think he was influenced by that reading. Also, Arabian Nights, you definitely see that here. Ah, Arabian Nights. So this is just, this is a compilation and a synthesizing of a lot of fairy tale ideas. Yeah, he's definitely interested in sort of universal myths and symbols and takes that from all over the place. Well, yeah, that's Hoffmannsthal's style. And Hoffmannsthal actually completed his libretto in 1915, though this opera was not actually staged until 1919. Of course, the the First World War was part of that delay. Yes, and, and maybe... Partly because of that, it wasn't extremely well received. A lot of people seem to be a bit confused. Well, it's a little bit about. of a confusing opera. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's confusing. It's not very straightforward, and the response was somewhat mixed. Even though other Strauss Hoffmannsthal collaborations had been received more well in okay. the past, I'm going to stop you right there and just put in a little plug or a little invitation to all of you. If you want to hear more of the Strauss Hoffmannsthal operas, we have three other opera for everyone's on Strauss Hoffmannsthal operas. The oldest one of them is actually their last collaboration. Episode 52 is Arabella, which is arguably their most lighthearted one. It's never lighthearted entirely with these two, but it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun, a lot of comedy in that. I did that one with Greg. And we also have uh, a discussion of Ariadne auf Naxos in the second half of the show that I did with Maestro Rochino, and that's episode 97. And episode 93 is probably their most famous of all operas that these two did, and that's Der Rosenkavalier. Not a long time after Rosenkavalier, which was a 1911 premiere, they were working on this. Ariadne auf Naxos came in between the two. But you're right, it wasn't initially embraced, although a lot of musicians will say this Die Frau und Schatten is their masterpiece. It is their best opera ever. Even in writing, Hoffmannsthal told Strauss in 1919, Strauss, this is your masterpiece. So it's interesting, didn't necessarily have that embracing celebratory reception by the entire public, but it it's always there as a great work of art. Even today, it doesn't get staged that often because it's it's a very demanding show and it's a little confusing. So it doesn't necessarily draw people in because it doesn't have the name recognition of something like Der Rosenkavalier or the comedy of Arabella. But I encourage everyone listening, if you have a chance to 
listen to the whole thing or even better yet see the whole thing please do at the moment while we're recording there's a very good version available on youtube maybe multiples but seek it out it's worth it watch an entire show of die frau ohne schatten i think you'll enjoy it certainly with a little bit of the understanding that we're trying to provide for you here so we've been leaving the Dyer and his wife to waste away in purgatory for a while now. I think we should check in on them, don't you think? Yeah, it's heartrending how Act 3 opens with these two jailed, essentially. We see them, they appear to be near each other, but they do not know that. They cannot hear one another. And each one has a tender song to sing about, I never really understood you, I never truly saw you. And arguably, this is part of the trial they are going through. And the way they are going to emerge is going to confirm that they passed the trial. A little bit of echoes of magic flute, speaking of inspirations. (laughs) So the clip that I want you to listen to now, you'll hear the dyer, Barak, and he is longing to see his wife again and make things right. And lo and behold, he is told to rise up. The way is clear. This is a a voice from above, this subterranean entrapment that he's in. And you'll hear it's, it's glorious music. We're filling with hope a little bit here. And his wife will also express her love for him and, and regret of the way she treated him. And she will also be told to ascend your free now woman. But they don't find themselves united immediately. for everyone and we have just left Barak and his wife freed from 
purgatory or wherever it is they were, but not yet reunited. <laughs> so we're going to turn to what's been going on with the Empress and mm. leave them for a little while. The Empress and the nurse have disappeared a little bit from our narrative, but they're going to reemerge. I know I've said a bunch of times that the Empress is very silent in the second act. Yeah, she's going to get to speak her mind for a little bit here. Yes, the third act is really about the Empress mm -hmm. and the Emperor and the nurse. So the Empress and the nurse have seemingly achieved their goal. They have gotten the woman to sell her shadow. Yeah. But the Empress has been having some serious second thoughts. Yes. And her family, her father, who's this deity who's kind of like an like an odin type of zeus type of figure the great spirit god yeah yes. he's known as kikobad which just feels like a, maybe a name pulled from a grab bag of mythology it doesn't really reference anything <laughs> but he has called the nurse and the empress back to the realm basically she's gonna get a talking to i think yeah <laughs> but they arrive at the gates to his realm and they're in a boat and it's very uh, misty and lugubrious and mysterious. Yeah, nobody's uh, steering that boat. It's doing it of <laughs> its own accord. And the nurse is really pushing the Empress to escape, to not go in, to take the shadow and sort of run with it and really pushing her back and forth. And the Empress has really had enough of the nurse. Yeah. In the fantastic production we saw, Act 2 actually ends with her pushing the nurse away physically. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time she's really separate from her and her own person. And that continues in this scene. She really won't listen to the nurse and she wants to stand on her own two feet. And the part we're gonna play for you here is that renunciation, finally, of her relationship with the nurse. Yes, She has come to realize that the nurse is inhuman and she wants to move as much as possible towards humanity. So she lets the nurse go. Right, because she understands there's consequences for your behavior and she is owning her own behavior and rejecting behavior that she feels is wrong. Very different take on all this than the nurse has. Getting even more dramatic by the second here in Die Frau ohne Schatten. We are in the third and final act of our opera and the Empress has rejected this guiding person of her entire life, this nurse of hers. So what about the nurse? What happens to her under this rejection? 
Well, as soon as the Empress leaves and goes through this big door to go into her father's realm, the nurse is left alone and a mm. messenger from Kikobad comes out and basically says, you've messed up and you have to wander the mortal world forever, which is a really bad punishment for her because she, she hates... finds it really smelly. <laughs> yes, she hates humans. So that's the last that we hear of her. There's a little bit in here too where Barak and his wife are, are looking for each other and they keep being sort of led astray by little malevolent fairy forces. But she keeps calling out to him. She wants to find him and he's trying to find her. And and we don't always see them on stage. We'll just hear their voices. It's, it's a little bit heartrending. These two have been released after expressing their great love. But they can't quite get to each other yet. Yeah, so we'll we'll hope those crazy kids work it out, but <laughs> TBD. Well, she finally has a chance to confront her father, more or less. We never see him, by the way. We just know he's there. Yeah, and I think that's actually a pretty important part. So I'm going to just pause on it for a second. Mm-hmm. We have this big, very powerful figure, Kikobad, the god of gods, and he never shows up. He gets talked about, he gets referenced, he's a big baddie, maybe, but he never shows up. And I think that's really significant, especially in the third scene where the Empress is calling out to her father. She's apologizing for certain things. She's really sort of spilling her soul to him. Right. And she's just confronted with silence. And it's very, uh, it's a little, it's creepy and very effective that she's left all alone. Yes, And in the midst of all this, this fountain will appear, this water of life. Well, that sounds lovely, but it's not so lovely. Yeah, there's a a messenger who appears, lots of messengers in this opera. (laughs) Spirit world. (laughs) Yeah, Kikobad never appears. He just sends all these guys to speak for him. Yeah, who basically says, you have the shadow. You have Mm -hmm. that. You just have to claim it. The Dyer's wife's shadow is sort of floating in the ether. And if you drink from the waters of this fountain, the water of life, you will become a human. You will have human life and the shadow will be yours. But she resists because she has learned that she cannot claim life and humanity at the consequence of another person's life. Right. So she keeps resisting. It keeps appearing. But she says no. Just as she has said there's blood on that shadow in the prior act. Here she says, there's blood in the water. Mm -hmm. I will not drink of it. So she's rejected drinking this water. And with that final rejection, that curse is going to make itself known. Yeah, so Kikobad, or whoever's pulling the strings here, gives her one last incentive to Mm. drink the waters by bringing out the semi-petrified husband, the emperor. He's mostly turned to stone, but not 100% turned to stone. According to Hoffmannsthal, it's only his eyes that can look out at her pleadingly. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of a drink this or he's gone. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so it's really the the ultimate trial for her. We mentioned the trials. We mentioned the magic flute and and the trials that Pamina and Tamino have to go through. Right. It's very similar here. She is presented with this ultimate consequence and she has to look it in the face and she has to say no. And she does. She says, I will not.
nicht. It's kind of a fun bit of theater when the empress says, Ich will, like I will. And then she drops the not, nicht. So she won't. She will not, even with her husband encased in stone, pleading with his eyes, which, by the way, that's hard to convey that pleading with the eyes on an opera stage, but trust us, that's part of what's going on. (laughs) Um, She screams right before she just resolutely says, I will not do this. Fascinatingly, that's when magical things truly begin to happen. There's a an understanding. She, in her strong moral stand, has achieved passage of one of these tests. Because at this point, lighting will show you that for the first time, there is a bright light and an actual shadow falls. And it's always staged very dramatically so that you can see her shadow. She has of her own accord stood up to these forces encouraging her to take advantage of other people. Yeah, I kind of think of it a little bit like that scene at the end of The Little Mermaid where her father is <laughs> able to transform her from a mermaid into having legs. Yes. And it's like he could have done that all along. <laughs> but she had to get to the place where like she was ready to to have those legs and not go to bad lengths to get them. It's yes. very similar in this. He, she learns to be human the right way, the hard way. And her reward is that the emperor turns back into the emperor. Yes, and just to reference another important work of art where a father has to interact with a daughter who is not obeying his will. In The Ring, when you have Wotan and Brunhilde, when Brunhilde disobeys Wotan, her punishment is to be made mortal, to be made a human. Whereas here, her reward is to be made human by her father, whom we never see in this show. But it's an interesting contrast. Yeah, definitely humanity has viewed very sympathetically in this opera. And the gods are, are seen as, as cold in a lot of ways or, or completely absent like Kikobad. Yes, yes. But yeah, so everything everything works out for her. She gets she gets her shadow, she can have children, the emperor is no longer petrified and Right. Right. Well these They're reunited. I mean I don't want to push this too far because I think Hoffmannstahl really was trying to do something to withstand the ages and not be of a moment in time. But you can't help remembering that this is happening around the time of the First World War. And I mean, wars are ever present in the human struggle anyway. But this this understanding of a shadow, this continuation of humanity on Earth, that she is going to be part of it and that that is a great good. Love between husbands and wives is a great good. And we will see Barak and his wife reunited finally at the end. But like you said, this third act really is about the Empress. We ultimately will see both of our couples, the Emperor and the Empress, Barak and his wife, reunited. Everyone's got a shadow. (laughs) Humanity will continue, and there is swelling, beautiful, celebratory music, including a children's choir, which is going to sing about their future lives and the glory of it all. Well, that's our opera. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, one little comment I want to share. Hoffmannshaw will say to Strauss, I am quite prepared for certain incomprehension of the subject, for the stupid and aggravating interpretations and the guesswork where everything is simply picture and fairy tale. All this will pass, he says, and what really counts will remain. So it's it's an opera that gets to be staged by different generations, 
but the glorious music and so many of these ideas fundamental to humanity are there to be explored. Yeah, I think it endures and has a lot to tell us, whether it's 1919 or today. Yeah. Well, Kathleen, once again, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me on Opera for Everyone. Always happy to be here. Enjoy, everyone.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright. Joined by Kathleen Vanduil. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. Opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe opera Opera is is for everyone. everyone.